So if you haven't already turned there, I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100, it's on page uh, 544 in the Pew Bible. And let's, uh, we'll read that and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 100. Shout triumphantly to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that Yahweh is God. Thank you. Acknowledge that Yahweh is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For Yahweh is good, and his love is eternal. His faithfulness endures through all generations. Just going to work through this psalm, and I want to make seven observations. Seven observations. The first two are preliminary, and the next five then are deal with the content of the psalm. The first observation is this. This is a psalm about worshiping God. This is a psalm about worshiping God. That's the subject matter. Worship has different connotations throughout Scripture, such as the kind of worship that we should express in everything we do, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, or Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in one sense, everything we do as believers is worship or should be worship if we're doing it in the will of God. So whether you eat or drink, did you know that you can eat to the glory of God? Did you know that there's a way to eat that is a Christian way of eating and drink that is a Christian way of drinking? And there's a way of eating and drinking that is non-Christian, you know, for instance, without acknowledging God's gifts to you, God's benefits to you, and so forth. So all of life in one sense is worship. But here, uh, I think the passage is primarily referring to the kind of worship that happens when we gather together as people, as a, as a body of Christ. Well, in the Old Testament here, it would be referring to the, to the Jewish worship uh, at the temple. Uh, it's, it's limited to our discussion of corporate worship, and that's what I want to limit our discussion to, to corporate worship, to primarily what takes place here in this hour that we gather every Sunday. So it's a psalm about worshiping God. And observation two, this psalm gives instructions about worshiping God. This psalm gives us instructions about worshiping God. The psalm is part of the scriptures. It's God's word. And what God seeks to do in this psalm is to show us at least in part of what our worship should look like. God not only deserves our worship, but he instructs us to worship. And he not only instructs us to worship, but he tells us, what our worship should look like. Those of you who have kids, don't you tell your kids what they should do, but then don't you also sometimes show them what that looks like? For instance, you teach your kids to apologize, but then you also have to distinguish what a good apology looks like and what a bad apology looks like. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, that's not a good apology, right? (laughs) Teach them the right way to do that. You teach your kids to say thank you to others, and then you also teach them how they are to thank others. I remember when the kids were younger, Sarah would, on, on some occasions, Sarah would direct them 
saying thank you is nice, but in this case, you really need to write out a thank you note and send it to them too. So, you know, we as parents, we, we tell our kids what to do, and then we often show them what that looks like. And God instructs us in worshiping, but he also instructs us what that is to look like. And part of that can be found here in this psalm. Observation number three, you are to worship God with joy and gladness. You are to worship God with joy and gladness. Now let's look at our, let's look at our text, verses 1 and 2. Shout triumphantly to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. You've got the word triumphantly there, the word gladness, the word joyful. Triumphantly, uh, Holman Christian Standard has shout triumphantly. Um, That opening is often translated in other versions as shout joyfully or to make a joyful noise. The Hebrew word behind our translations there is used in various situations. And it sometimes has the idea of joy behind it. It sometimes has the idea of triumph, as in over our enemies behind it, or even the idea of warning or sounding an alarm. It just depends on the context. But one aspect of that word that seems consistent throughout all of those different shades of meaning is volume. In other words, it's loud. The idea is that it's a, it's a loud It's a loud shout. The word calls for someone to literally split the ears with sound, so to speak. So I wonder if we could just practice that for a minute. All right? Um, I want to lead you in just a brief brief praise to the Lord. All right? And I want you to repeat after me, and I want you to be... I don't want you to scream, but I want you to be full-throated. Okay? Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Glory to God the Father. Glory to Christ His Son. Glory to the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Very good. Very good. Our singing should be full-throated as well. And we'll get into singing in just a little bit. So you are to worship God with joy and gladness. But let me first, let me first deal with some exceptions. Are we always to come together to worship the Lord with joy and gladness? Are we always to put on a happy face even when our hearts are breaking inside? There are times in the Old Testament when the people gathered before the Lord with lamentation and with mourning and with sorrow. James says that there is a time to grieve and a time to mourn and wail and to change your joy to gloom and your laughter to mourning. Sometimes when you enter this room on a Sunday morning, your heart may be bursting with sorrow over some loss or over some sin, whether it's your loss or sin or someone else's loss or sin. In those moments, God isn't telling you to grin and bear it. But even with your sorrow, he wants you to bring that sorrow to him. Psalm 62.8, for instance, says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So sorrow and mourning may sometimes be hiding the joy. So there's an exception to the general worship directions of verses 1 and 2. But overall, our worship should be characterized by joy and gladness. Why should this be so? Because you have so much to be grateful for as believers. We have so much to be joyful about. Psalm 100 was originally written to Israel. The fact that they weren't still in slavery in Egypt was all because of God. 
The fact that they were a nation with their own land, a land flowing with milk and honey, was all because of God. The fact that they had a temple, that they knew God as their God, that they were an autonomous people, was all because of God. Their lives would have been so much worse had God not intervened. Shouldn't, take, shouldn't they take joy in that? Absolutely. Should they be glad for his intervention in their lives? Absolutely. Should they joyfully thank him for that? Absolutely. And what about you and me, those of us who are put our faith, our faith in Christ and know Christ as our Savior? We also have much to be grateful for. Even if you are battling illness, even if your family life is not so good, even if your blood pressure is up and your bank account is down, you have much to be joyful for in the presence of the Lord. Don't let your temporary earthly circumstances always overshadow your spiritual blessings and your eternal future. If you are a Christian, listen to this. Your sins, all your sins, no matter how bad, have been forgiven. Your guilt has been transferred to Christ on the cross. You are no longer an enemy of the all-powerful creator of the universe. You are no longer an enemy of the judge of all humanity. But you are now reconciled to him. More than that, you have been adopted into his family and you are dearly loved by him. You have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and been transferred into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. You have been led from the path that leads to destruction, a path on which you were briskly and witlessly walking, and you have been led to the path that leads to life. You no longer have wrath stored up for you at the return of Christ, but a reward and an inheritance awaits you. Your destiny is no longer misery and eternal punishment, but joy and security and eternal satisfaction. It's no longer a very real hell, but rather a very real new heavens and a new earth. You are no longer alone now, but God dwells within you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you are family now with all followers of Jesus Christ. Even your sufferings now are not wasted, but God is using them for your good. Because of these blessings and many others, you should often be worshiping the Lord with joy. Don't let your demeanor be always characterized by your earthly circumstances. Let your demeanor often be characterized by, by, by the reality of eternity, by your eternal circumstances, by your spiritual circumstances, by what is true of you because you are a Christian. Observation number four, you should voice your worship. You should voice your worship. Verses 1 and 2. Shout triumphantly to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. With joyful songs. Shout songs. My kids don't like me to use them in my sermons. When Callie was younger... (laughs) We sometimes told Callie to read silently. And then a few seconds later, I would ask her to read silently, not even moving her lips. (laughs) That kind of silently. A person can read silently. A person can pray silently. An example would be Hannah in 1 Samuel. A person can worship silently. But this is not the norm, especially in corporate worship. We have the command to shout. We We have the word about songs. Have you, ever, have you ever attended a concert of silent singing? How interesting was that? <laughs> what if everyone here chose not to sing on a Sunday morning? Those of you who don't sing our songs with us, and I have no idea who you are because 
I am engrossed in that music, and I, I don't know who sings and who doesn't. It sounds pretty full whenever I'm at the piano. But those of you who don't sing, if there are any of you, what is the reason for that? And it, is, it, is it a reason that satisfies God? Is it because you can't carry a tune in a bucket? Um, well, Pastor Ryan often points out the idea, the, the, the command, make a joyful noise. <laughs> make a joyful noise. But if that, you know, if, that, if that bothers you, then I would encourage you to maybe mouth the words or speak the words quietly or sing the words softly um, if you don't feel comfortable singing loudly because you can't carry a tune, if that's the reason. But is there another reason? Would there be other reasons why those of you who don't sing don't sing? And is that reason, does that reason have at all to do with pride at all? And if it's motivated by pride, then I would encourage you to humble yourself before the Lord and join in singing his praises. All told, uh, the Bible contains over 400 references to singing and 50 commands throughout scriptures to sing to the Lord. The longest book of the Bible, the one that we're looking at now, is a book of songs. It's a, it's a hymn book, if you will. It's a, it's a collection of songs. So we should, we should voice our worship. You talk about the things that are most important to you. You know, if we don't, in this body, talk and voice our praise to God, how in the world are we going to, what, what would motivate us to talk and voice our praise to God outside of these walls? So I would encourage you to sing, and sing with your heart, and to sing um, full-throated with your lungs. Observation number five, one thing that can motivate your worship of God is the knowledge that you belong to him. One thing that can motivate your worship of God is the knowledge that you belong to him. Look at verse 3. Acknowledge that Yahweh is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Notice the emphasis in this verse of how we belong to God. Four different phrases, four different phrases there. He made us, we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. This verse emphasizes the fact that we belong to God. For me, the older I get, the more refreshing it is to me to know that I belong to God, that I belong to God. We, we sing that song, um, uh, Sing to the King, um, and there's that phrase in there that now I'm forgetting, so I don't know why I brought it up, but we belong to him, something like that. I love that phrase in that song. I love that song anyway, but that particular phrase, we belong to him, the fact that we belong to him is wonderful. Life is change. Life is all about change. Sin and suffering and death are the furniture of this life. Decline and decay happen. For that reason, it's good to belong to God. And because we do, none of those things are permanently true about us. Decline and decay is not the norm for us. It feels like the norm right now, but it is not who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. Our destiny is not marked by those things. Our destiny is rather marked by joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, security, because we belong to God. Decline and decay will fall away. I don't know what problems you're going through now. I don't know what health issues you're going through, what difficulties you're going through. But as a believer, you, do you realize these things are going to come to an end and not just because you go in the grave? No, because you're going to live forever and these things are going to go. There, there is an end date. There is a deadline for evil. There is a deadline for any kind of evil and sin. These things will not continue. They are not eternal. 
if you're a child of God. Decline and decay will fall away. Problems and struggle may seem like your constant companions right now, but they will fall away. Why? Because you belong to God, because Christ died for you and your faith is in Christ. I'm talking to those of you who have your faith in Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Kurt read for us that passage earlier for 1 John 5.12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. As a church, we're praying for a number of people right now with health issues. And they're listed in your bulletin. There's several people on the, on the one flap there on your bulletin who have, who have some significant health issues. And, and we're praying for them. But you know what we're praying for about them? We're praying for their meantime. We're praying for their, their time right now. We're not praying about their eternal future or their destiny. We know that every one of those people on their list, as far as their faith is in Christ, um, we know that they're all going to get better eventually. We know that these things that we're praying about right now are not going to plague them eternally. It's just a temporary thing right, right here while we're on earth. And it's serious, and we pray about that, but eventually they're all going to be great. They're all going to be great because their faith is in Christ, because they belong to God. Some time ago, uh, on a Wednesday night, John Gonzer, in response to what we were talking about in our Bible study, he, just, uh, he asked the question, if anyone in the room had been adopted... And then uh, after a few people, I don't remember how many people raised their hands, then he, then he made the point that if you're a Christian, you should have raised your hand. Because of our faith in Christ, we've all been adopted into God's family. Listen to these verses about our adoption by God. First John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Galatians chapter 4. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. If your faith is in Christ, God has adopted you into his family. Romans 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. How much do you make of the thought that as a believer you are God's child? How do you refer to God? Do you, do you pray to him as your father? You know, God wants us to call him his father. Jesus set the example that we should call him our Father, Heavenly Father. Um, the, Spirit, uh, and, um, the Spirit prompts us to refer to Him as Father. You are a child of God. God is your Father. Do you comprehend that? Do you dwell on that? Do you grasp what that means and how significant that is? I think often, I think often on the fact that God has adopted me as His own, that I am a child of God, and that motivates me to worship Him and to worship Him with joy. You belong to God. Observation number six. Your worship is to be characterized by thanksgiving. Your worship is to be characterized by thanksgiving. In addition to joy, our worship is to be characterized by thanksgiving. 
Um, one of the things I appreciate about my children is that they are thankful, grateful children. Uh, they, they express their gratitude and their thanks to us often. And when I hear them pray, usually when they pray, they start off with thanksgiving to the Lord. They're thanking the Lord about something, um, whether it's something specific or something general. Give thanks to the Lord. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. So twice we're told to give thanks and twice we're told to praise there in verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Give thanks to the Lord. Be thankful. There's so much to be thankful for. Tell him often of the things that you're thankful for and be specific and be specific. It can be things, spiritual things. It can be physical things. I thank the Lord for my house. I thank the Lord for running water. I thank the Lord for electricity. I thank you for a car that works most of the time. Um, I thank the Lord for my family. I thank the Lord for my church family. Um, you know, um, thank him for the things that he's done for you. Thank you for answer, Thank him for answers to prayer and so forth. Worship should be joyful and it should be thankful. Now, I'm going to give you observation seven here in just a second, and that's, I think, the last thing on your outline, but I just want to tell you that that's not the end of the sermon. So, <laughs> um, You can pack up and stuff, but don't mentally check out on me, okay? <laughs> observation seven, another thing that can motivate your joyful, thankful worship is recalling God's attributes. Another thing that can motivate your joyful, thankful worship is recalling God's attributes. Look at verse five, for Yahweh is good. And his love is eternal. His faithfulness endures through all generations. Notice the word for there. The word for at the beginning of the verse, for verse 5, it gives us the reason why we're to be thankful. It gives us the reason why we're to come to church being thankful and, and praising God. In this verse, three of God's attributes in particular are mentioned. Um, first of all, there's his goodness, God's goodness. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good, and what you do is good. Talking about God. You are good, and what you do is good. God is good by definition. In fact, he is the definition of good. Psalm 92, 15 says, The Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. I hear the rain. There is no wickedness in God. I, I love that. I love the way that's worded. There is no wickedness of God, in God. There is no hint of wickedness. There is no hint of evil. There is no hint of malice or slander or whatever in God. Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. In other words, God's goodness is so great and absolute, no one else compares to him. There is no one good except God alone. He never, God never wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. He is never unjustifiably ticked off. Jesus, the Son of God, when he became, Jesus became a man to show us what God was like. And Jesus helps us to see the goodness of God because he was good in everything he did. There's that verse in Acts, uh, in Acts <laughs> that says he went around doing good. Jesus went around doing good. Nothing he did was, properly speaking, bad or wicked or questionable or malicious. And God is always good to his people. Uh, Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So 
you know, recalling God's attributes, recalling that the God we serve is a good God. Okay, we're not serving, we're not serving the gods, the so-called gods of Greek mythology or Roman mythology or whatever who uh, had quite the mixture of bad and good. Our God is supreme and our God is uh, perfectly good. So praise him for his goodness and then also God's love. God's love for Yahweh is good and his love eternal. The Bible tells us that God is love. It was love that moved God to send his son to earth, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you see in those three verses, it's God's love that motivated him to send his son. It was love that the son had that motivated him to obey the father and come and lay down his life for us. Notice also in this verse that his love endures forever. For eternity, he will do what's best for his people. Child of God, he will never, never, ever stop loving you. He will never stop loving you. Do you realize that no matter how much your family loves you, no matter who your closest friend is, that their love for you does not compare to the love of God for you? There is no one who loves you more than God does. No one. And then finally, his faithfulness. God's faithfulness. His faithfulness, the last last sentence there, his faithfulness endures uh, through all generations. His faithfulness endures through all generations. In other words, God is not fickle. God does not break his word. Have you experienced the fickleness of others? You're waiting for someone to show up, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and they never show up like they said they were going to, and then you find out they had a better offer, or they forgot, or whatever. Um, God's not like that. Or have you ever been the fickle one? Have you been uh, unable to keep your word, or unwilling to keep your word? God's not like that. He is faithful. Um, he, is, he, is not, he is not fickle. God has made a lot of promises, and he has fulfilled a lot of them, and he will fill the, fulfill the rest of them as well. Um, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes when there's a, like a, uh, a presidential campaign, when we're in a presidential year, and they have these political rallies, and uh, you know whether it's a Republican convention or a Democratic convention, and uh, the candidate, the presidential candidate, gets up to speak, and uh, you know he says a few words, and then there's there's this great uproar of applause and so forth, and then you know he makes another promise, and there's this you know, and what what do we all think about? What do we all think about campaign promises? <laughs> I mean, all this rejoicing over these promises that we're not sure, we're pretty sure aren't going to be kept. You know, um, God's not like that. Every single one of His promises will be fulfilled. Recalling that God is good and loving and faithful, recalling that he is good to you, recalling that he actively and constantly loves you, recalling that he is faithful to you, these should motivate joyful, thankful worship. So the the bottom line, you know, I think from this psalm is something like this. Your worship should generally be characterized by joy and gratitude. We serve a great God, and he deserves large worship from you. So as you come to know him more and more, and as you meditate on who he is and his work in the world and in your life, 
your worship should become larger. It should become better. It should become more vibrant, more joyful, more grateful. It will become increasingly grateful and increasingly joyful.